Before we begin, first a little disclaimer. The sermon that you're about to hear will end in failure on my part. Because in order to unpack and understand the significance of this text, we're going to have to look at the very character of God Most High. We're going to need to make an attempt together to understand what is ultimately incomprehensible. So it would be very arrogant of me to think that my prepared words are going to somehow bring some sort of new understanding where the greatest and wisest of men, women, angels could not. And it would be just as arrogant of us as a church to think that we could come close to fully understanding the uncreated one just by our intellect or just by our reasoning alone. At no point this morning should any of us listen and think, oh, this makes perfect sense. There is mystery, glory, despair, and hope in our text that plays on a spectrum that is so vast, the scale of it is just unimaginable. And my prayer has been this week that we would leave here today not just with more understanding, more knowledge, but that we would walk out of here with a view of God that leaves us both in awe and also provokes a godly boldness as we go. Second thing, before we begin, I am very passionate about the topic of today's message. I have a tendency to get carried away. I'm going to get very loud. I'm going to get emotional about this subject. I've been a part of this church for many years, and honestly, we are the most polite sermon listeners ever. Not a peep out of anybody. Now, I said last week, Rich is still out of town, so this is the last time we can get away with stuff. I don't really believe that, but here we go. Um, I believe that it's good and right to have an orderly service and to sit in reverence under the preached Word of God. But I also believe that it is good and right and okay to throw out a hearty amen or that's right every once in a while. Thank you. It's okay with me if you would occasionally let me and the rest of the church know you agree with what's being preached. Okay? All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors 
for Christ. God making his appeal through you, through me, through us as the church. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your people are gathered in your name in this place. And we have one request of you. That your Holy Spirit would take your word and would illuminate Christ in our hearts. God, I am so aware of how flawed my words are. My words are going to come up short. But your word, Lord, is perfect. Reviving the soul. Revive our souls this morning, God, with a fresh look at our Savior. Bring understanding to our hearts and our minds as we look to your word. Amen. These six verses are so densely packed with things that should not be. This text boldly declares concepts that are impossible. And if you study the character of God more closely, they become even more impossible. These verses, they are God's words. We know they have to be true. But how can they be true? That God reconciles sinners to himself, that alone strongly defies all logic. On the face of it, it makes no sense. And yet this This is the chief doctrine by which all other doctrines come from. It wouldn't be an understatement to say that your very life depends on how you think about this. Because the only way that these verses make any sort of sense is by having a robust understanding of Christ and the gospel. And to have a robust understanding of Christ and the gospel, we need to understand the seriousness of sin. And the only way to grapple with the seriousness of sin is to first look at the attributes of God himself. It all starts with having a biblically informed view of the character of God Most High. If our understanding of God is ill-informed, then sin doesn't seem that bad. Jesus doesn't appear all that glorious. And the gospel just becomes okay news that we've heard many times. And if we ever find ourselves in that place as a church, it'd be better if we tore it down and went our own separate ways. This is not a club. You're not listening to a TED Talk. We don't teach seven tips and tricks on how to be a good person. This is a church of God most high. And the stakes, they couldn't be any higher. The eternal life or death of people's souls. So we had better take care in how we think about and talk about our God. Everything stems from this understanding. So we begin 
We begin with the knowledge that God is holy. He is perfect. God is a righteous judge. Mankind is sinful and deserving of judgment. But this holy God reconciles sinners to himself. How can this be? He's under no obligation to. No one compels him to. In fact, a holy and perfect judge should not reconcile the guilty. Any modern-day judge who lets guilty people go free and throws innocent people in jail, we would recognize very quickly that judge, horrible judge. God himself condemns this kind of judge in the strongest terms possible in Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If you're going to be a good judge, your one job is to convict the guilty and justify the innocent. And there's no question on which side of the courtroom all of mankind stands. The Bible tells us that all of mankind is wicked and guilty and deserving of death. And that sounds so extreme to our ears. The death penalty for sin, even, even little sins, that's how my mind goes. Like, really? The tiniest little sin earns you the death penalty? That seems extreme. And we think that way because we have an awful tendency of assigning thresholds to sin. We put sin on a spectrum. We all feel the spark of justice when a, when a warlord who commits genocide is punished. We say, yeah, he deserved it. His crime exceeded the threshold for an extreme punishment. We're also very comfortable in keeping the threshold for sin high when it's for someone else, especially if their sin hurt us. Right, but then we slide the threshold over for ourselves when it comes to gossip. It's not that bad. Not living with your wife in an understanding way. That's not that important. Complaining, creating division in the church, being anxious about the future. We don't see those sins as crossing the threshold for deserving death, but God absolutely does. All sin, whether it's adultery, being anxious, idolatry, or stealing a pack of gum, all of it is offensive to God in the utmost extent. And this offense creates for you a debt that can only be paid for by death. This is the shocking seriousness of sin. It's uncomfortable. It's extreme. But it doesn't change the fact that this is the objective reality in which we live. You can say it doesn't sound fair, doesn't sound just, but God's Word is the benchmark definition of those terms. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death. Now, as a side note, while it is true that God, 
He hates all sin. Some sins have greater consequences here in this life. One notable example from 1 Peter 3.7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This should cause every husband to walk out of here in fear and trembling. God takes all sin seriously, but God takes the sin of you treating your wife poorly so seriously that he will, in in some way that I don't understand, interrupt his relationship with you until you show honor to your wife. See, God's reaction to sin is severe. It's absolute, and it is completely just. Sin is breaking God's law, and he decides what constitutes a sin and what the just punishment should be for that sin. God's courtroom is not like traffic court, where going 50 over the speed limit gets you a harsher sentence than going 10 over the speed limit. We have to to rid ourselves of thinking that God operates this way. God's threshold for sin is straight up zero. It's either perfect adherence to his law or it's death. There's no sliding threshold for sin. It's pass-fail. And what's more, you don't get to take the test. You're born into this failure. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is our reality. This is the reality for all of mankind. Born, steeped in sin, incurring a debt so massive we couldn't even hope to pay for it, and scheduled to appear before a judge who by his very nature is so just, he cannot and he will not pardon the guilty. So when we read that God reconciles sinners to himself and our first response is, well, that's nice. Or I knew that already. Well, then we're in trouble. We've lost something then. The fact that God reconciles sinners should produce such a deep sense of awe and wonder. How can this be? Because on the face of it, it shouldn't even be possible. So costly was the debt of our sin. So great and terrible a price to be paid for it. So hopeless and pitiful and rebellious the people who incurred that debt. First of all, who could possibly pay it? And second, who would want to? We're not exactly a catch. We're showing up to the table with sin and brokenness. Who would choose that? Listen to this exchange between God and His Son, inspired and adapted from the writings of John Flavel. Puritan preacher from the 17th century. He writes, Here you may suppose the Father to say when driving his bargain with Christ for you. The Father speaks, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them 
or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them? The son responds, My father, such is my love and pity for them. Rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for what they owe. Bring in all of their debts. Bring in all of the bills that I might see what they owe, that there will be no after-reckoning with them. From my own hands shall you require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father responds, But my son... If you undertake this for them, you must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no abatement. Hope for no mercy, for you will have none. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son replies, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to pay this debt in full. And even though it proves a kind of undoing to me, even though it would impoverish all my riches, even though it would empty the storehouses of all my treasures, I am content to do this. I will pay it in full, for I love this people and I have chosen them to be mine. Christ the only one who could possibly pay the massive debt of our sin also chose to pay it out of love for you. A few weeks ago, the first images from the James Webb telescope were downloaded to earth. This picture of the heavens represents the area blocked by a grain of sand held at arm's length. It contains thousands of galaxies, potentially billions of planets, and as people across the world struggled to come to terms with the sheer size of the universe, I couldn't help but think it cost the life of the creator of that to pay for our sins, to pay our debt. If he can create that behind a grain of sand, then what do the storehouses of all of his riches look like? Because that's what it took to redeem his people. God reconciles sinners to himself, and he does it through Christ. But how is this done? In a way that God remains consistent with his own character as righteous judge. Verse 21 of our text explains the mechanics. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Many theologians have very strong warnings for any preacher who expounds this verse. Don't say too much, they caution, for you could find yourself approaching blasphemy. But don't say too little, 
lest you rob God's people from seeing his glory. Lord, keep us from blasphemy and show us your glory. God cannot sin. He's holy. He's perfect. And he is just. When verse 25 says, For our sake he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin, it does not mean that God in some way caused Jesus to sin. Nor does it mean that at any point in his life Jesus committed a sinful act. Some have taken this verse to to indicate a sort of divine child abuse. That God would order his son to sin so that he could pour out his anger on Christ. That is blasphemy. And it boils my blood because this verse, this verse is everything to me. This verse in all of its horror is the only thing that stands between us and hell. What this verse means is that Christ, out of love for you, and out of love for me, he struck an arrangement with God the Father to take all the forensic evidence of all of our sin, all the muck, all of the filth, and smear it all over himself until he was unrecognizable. Layer after layer of my rancid rebellion coated this man until his own father had to look away. In this way, he became sin because when God the Father looked at him on the cross, that's what he saw. Christ took the evidence of our sins upon himself in such a personal and absolute way that it looked as if he had committed all of them. And he did it to intentionally attract God's focused wrath away from us and onto himself with no common grace to shield him. Every ounce of God's judgment meant for us found its target on Christ. A single drop of God's wrath would make us melt like wax in front of a blast furnace, but Christ drank the full measure of it. He consumed it, and he endured the same time that Christ drew out my sin and put it on himself, he also takes his life free from any sin and he drapes it over my shoulders like a robe and now both of us are unrecognizable from what we once were. Christ became sin and the Christian becomes righteous. If you were waiting to say amen, that was the moment. Amen. Look, no one watching in all of the hosts of heaven were under any illusions as to who really had lived the perfect life and who was really responsible for the debt of sin. There was no confusion about the reality of what was happening. The perfectly innocent man was made to look like the wicked, and the wicked were made to look like the perfectly innocent man. And the righteous judge justly pours out his judgment. See, there was only ever one hope. 
A champion was needed who was perfect. No one perfect could be found. A strong man of God with shoulders broad enough to withstand the avalanche of God's terrible wrath was required. No one could withstand the wrath of God and endure. We needed somebody who obeyed God's law to the letter with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Someone who could endure temptation and never one time buckle under its weight. If you took all of mankind, past, present, future, and you added them up together, their sum total wouldn't be a fraction of what was required. Not even close. So when I tell you that without Christ we were hopeless, that, that word, it just scratches the surface of describing our situation. We were so without hope. Our only hope was that God would intervene in an impossible way. And that way was and still is the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who formed our rescue before we even knew we needed to be rescued. You better believe that God did this for his own glory. But church, don't you ever forget that it was all motivated by love for you. A love for you that is so immense and so massive. It's going to take all of eternity to plumb the depths of it. And even then, we won't be able to. 10,000 years will just be getting started. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for a people who that's all they knew. In Christ, God's justice was satisfied and we, a hopeless people, reconciled. Free. Impossibly free. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Church, look at this glory. Don't stop looking at this glory. When your love grows cold, when your heart is hardened, let this break you. And then allow the Spirit of God to put you back together because there is much gospel work to be done together. Second Corinthians 5, verse 15, leading up to our text, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. First part of verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul is writing to what was arguably one of the worst church plants ever. The church in Corinth, it, they were outdoing the pagans at their, at their own game. It would be like if we planted a church in Las Vegas only to find out a year from now that the residents of Sin City were impressed with the immorality of the church. Corinth was well known throughout the Roman Empire for its debauchery and deep immorality. It was something that they celebrated. They boasted about this. But even they had limits. And this church plant 
appeared to not have very many limits. So if there was ever a group of people to regard or be known by their outward conduct, it'd be these guys. But Paul does the opposite, and he points this wayward church to the reality of their new life in Christ. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning we have a new way of seeing each other. No longer do we only look at the external. We are aware of the extraordinary transformation that has taken place in the heart of a fellow believer. And we use that as the primary means to understand who they are. Paul's line of thinking goes like this. If God, the most holy and perfect judge, reconciles someone to himself, who could say otherwise? How can we look down on a fellow Christian and judge them according to their outward conduct when God himself has made them righteous? Now what this does not mean is that we turn a blind eye to each other's sin. Elsewhere, Paul still calls this Corinthian church to pursue godliness, and he calls them out when they were living in unrepentant sin. But he does so in a way that regards them as the blood-bought church of Christ, redeemed from sin. Paul goes on, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. See, Paul is saying, I was wrong before when I thought that Jesus was just a man. Heinrich Meyer writes in his New Testament commentary, Paul had known Christ so long as the merely human individuality of Christ, his lower earthly appearance, was the limit of his knowledge of him. At the time when he himself was still a zealot against Christ and his persecutor, he knew him as a mere man. As a common Jew, not as Messiah, not as the Son of God. As one who was justly persecuted and crucified, not as a sinless reconciler. It was quite different, however, when God had revealed his Son to Paul, where he had learned to know Christ according to his true, higher, spiritual nature. And Paul calls the Corinthian church and us to know each other according to our new, true, higher spiritual natures, which is redeemed, justified, and righteous in Christ. See, the gospel applied is so utterly powerful and transforming that it creates a whole brand new person with a whole brand new identity. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So thorough is that transformation. So profound a canyon between outside of Christ and in Christ. It can only be described as death and life. When you accept the free offer of God's grace and your debt of sins gets paid for in full by Christ, in that moment there becomes an old you. 
and that old you dies, and it is gone. There is no after-reckoning with that old you, because it passed away, and now you are no longer that person. In God's eyes, it's as if you were born all over again. You were born all over again into a new life, and that new life looks remarkably similar to the perfect one that Jesus lived. Is our new life perfect now? No. But it will be. We're being changed day by day by the Spirit of the living God to, to look more and more like Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The old life can't see the kingdom of God. The old life gets the here and the now and that's it. So Paul directs our attention, Behold, look at this new life that you have in Christ. As you walk out your lives as believers in the church, make sure that you interact with one another as those who have been made new. Verses 18 through 20, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through you, through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul tells us that this plan of reconciliation, it is all from God. God plans our rescue before the foundations of the world. God gives his son to be our ransom. God, the son, gives his life for his people. God gives the son's righteous life to that people. God gives his spirit to empower those in Christ. It's all from God. He does all of the work. But then, in a surprising move that, that nobody saw coming, he, he takes the entire ministry of this amazing divine reconciliation, and then he gives it to us, the church. This glorious message of grace, mercy, peace, and reconciliation, God says to us, here, take this. I'm entrusting this to you. I will make my appeal through you. You will be my ambassadors to the world. We're not bringing anything to the table but our sin and brokenness. So it's like, I don't want to question you, God, but are you sure? I'm not up on the current requirements for becoming an ambassador for a country. But I imagine that pretty high up on the list is something like, don't hire your sworn enemy. Don't hire someone who hated you personally and everything that you stood for. 
Don't give the job that's supposed to further the interest of your country to someone who killed the king's son. But God does exactly that. And he makes us, the church, ambassadors for Christ. And honestly, we just seem like such an odd choice. Just being honest. After God does all of this, this work on this, this scale that we can't even really comprehend fully, for God to turn and then say, I'm going to make my appeal to the world and I'm going to do it through you. Just how good of an ambassador could we be in the face of that? It just seems like we would make the worst ambassadors. But listen to this. God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, it is so assured. And the righteous life that Jesus gave to us is so beyond guaranteed that the new creation that the believer in Christ becomes is not only well qualified for this job, we also now permanently possess God's Spirit within us to do that job. It is only because of the power of Christ in us, the Spirit of God working through us, that we are thoroughly equipped by God to, to be entrusted with this message of reconciliation. We have what we need. God makes his appeal through us. And you've, you've heard it said before here. It's as if God, with one hand, is holding back his wrath. He's, he's giving time for people to hear this message. And with his other hand, he is reaching out, making his appeal, imploring, beseeching people, be reconciled to God, and he does it through the church. God sends us out to be the voice of his appeal. Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As a church, we just last week finished our series in First. Timothy, Life Together, Instructions for Being the Church. We've taken the blueprints of how a church should be built, and we've shored up our foundation with the Word of God and how we should conduct ourselves. And I felt the Lord leading me to preach from this text, from 2 Corinthians, with the application of 1 Timothy 5.1, which says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So, I'm a younger-ish guy. 
There's no rebuke or anything corrective in this whatsoever. This church excels in walking out 2 Corinthians 5. This, this is an encouragement and a call for boldness in going forth. In going forth to preach the gospel as ambassadors for Christ. So, older men of Center Church, many of you have walked this out over the decades so well. Your example, it inspires us young guys, and we need your example and discipleship. But go further. Be more bold in Christ. Take more risks for the gospel. Lead us by your example of humility and dependence on Christ. Young guys, brothers, Seek out discipleship. Cultivate humility and work to continually be in awe of our God. Use this season to spend your energy becoming so filled with love and affection for the Savior that it overflows and spills out and inspires those around you. Grow your confidence in Christ who gives you the strength to lift the shield of faith, because the fiery darts of trials, they're coming. Lean on Christ. Lean on your brothers here that you might stand firm and proclaim the good news. Older women, God's term, not mine. Many of you have faithfully studied God's Word longer than I've been a believer, and you have wisdom from the Lord that this church needs. You have experience in godly living that needs to be passed down to the next generation. You have a testimony of God's amazing grace in your life that needs to be shared. Be bold for Christ. Preach the gospel to those who are perishing by sharing what God has done for you. Young women, sisters, be mighty women of God's word. Study it. And know it and let it shine out of your life so when the powers of this dark world press in, you may draw the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with a steady and practiced hand. Seek out and desire discipleship. Be so bold as ambassadors for Christ and so assured of your Savior's love that, that when the darkness comes, you stand your ground. And you proclaim the light of the gospel. If I could have the worship team come on up as we close. Every one of us, if we profess to be a Christian, have been given this title of ambassador. You're not going to become an ambassador one day. You currently are an ambassador right now. We all have a role to play in this ministry of reconciliation. First, we love and treat one another with the understanding that Christ shed blood for us. We remember that He chose to pay the debt of our sin out of love for us. We are His through and through. And He calls us to go. He sends us to go and plead with sinners 
be reconciled to God. I don't know why he rescued me, but he did, and he can do the same for you. He can rescue you. All we have to cling to as we go out and boldly preach the good news is Christ himself. And that, beloved church, is all that we need. Amen.